Last Sunday, I said the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in history. In our uh, study of the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, we learned the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a religious myth, but a concrete historical fact. You know, when it comes to assess history correctly, the most crucial factor is eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Just like a legal court, historians value eyewitnesses' account or testimony far more than circumstantial evidences. That's why Apostle Paul enlisted the names and the number, the large number of eyewitnesses who encountered risen Christ, including himself. Truly, Paul's life doesn't make sense without Christ. Now, after hearing that statement, do you wonder if resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important historical account, how come and why there are so many people still don't believe it, don't accept it? Do you know why so many still are hesitant? One of the main reasons for that is there have been many misguided Christians in the church like a Corinthian Christians. They think they know God, but actually they made a God in their own image. Christians, the Corinthians, particularly Corinthians that we, we study, they, miss, they, they misread the resurrection as what? Not resurrection of a body, but resurrection from the body. This is a typical Greek misunderstanding of a physicality of a life. And their view of a resurrection is far more cultural than biblical, far more Greek than Hebrew. And they thought they, they, they knew the gospel, and actually what they are doing is that they are revising gospel with their cultural bias. And I must say, we still have this kind of a Christians in the midst of us. And maybe some of us still not sure about the resurrection. So this is why we are, we are digging the, the meaning of a resurrection. This uh, Easter, I, heard, I read a very uh, shocking interview uh, in the uh, New York Times. A friend of mine, you know, forward that and then it was an interview of uh, Serene Jones, the president of a Union Theological Seminary in New York City. By the way, Union Theological Seminary is affiliated with Columbia University. And uh, Jamie and my daughter, oldest one, they went to, you know, Bonner College, Columbia, Columbia. So, you know, and this is a, a premier seminary in the America, you know, eight, founded in 1836. And... Uh, Great uh, scholars like the uh, Rhino River and Philip Sheff and Raymond Brown and James Kahn, they were they were the, you know some of the name of uh, teachers in the seminary. And uh, some of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was an exchange student in the seminary. And guess what the Serene Jones actually said about Easter? This is a president of a seminary, renowned. Seminary, Union Theological Seminary, she said she does not believe literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
Okay, let me read her answer. She said, quote, When you look into the gospel, the stories are all over the place. There is no resurrection story in Mark. <laughs> Just an empty tomb. She doesn't explain why there is an empty tomb. But Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. Crucifixion is not something God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive God the Father who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. She has no concept of Trinity. She thinks God the Father is an abusive father. But, but what happened in Easter, then, then this is her interpretation of Easter. But what happened on Easter is a triumph of love in midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? So interviewer asked further, what happened when people die? Jones responded, I don't know. There may be something. There may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about afterlife. And again, the interviewer asked, how do you reconcile omnipotent, omniscient God with the evil and suffering? And her response was, at the heart of faith is a mystery. God is beyond our knowing, not a being or essence or an object. But I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent, omniscient being. That's a fabrication of a Roman juridical theory and Greek mythology. End of quote. You know, this is an example of a liberal theology. Let me put that clearly for you. You know, in Dallas, you hear the liberal theology often, right? You know, and many uh, conservative pastors in Dallas, they just uh, put anybody who don't agree with them or anybody who is a uh, right side of them, they call them a liberals. Okay, so I was called by a liberal by many people, by affiliation and so forth. But real liberals are those, as like a Syrian Jones. And she's a president of a renowned seminary. And once it was rival to Princeton Seminary, my alma mater. And let me give you actually some names there for you to, you know, I have some names. Do we have some names? Okay. These are the big names in the New Testament scholarship. Dominique Croissant, Marcus Borg, and Bart Ehrman. Dominique Croissant and Mark Borgers, they are affiliated with the so-called Jesus Seminar. And uh, Bart uh, and uh, Dominique Croissant passed away, and uh, I think both of them passed away. And, uh, uh, Bart Ehrman is a professor at the University of North Carolina. He's, he's, he's very active. But they have a one thing in common, that is, they all try to find a non-supernatural way to explain the Bible. And you try. Actually, these are the liberals. They are following the Enlightenment spirit. The 18th century, the, you know, the European revolution, intellectual revolution, where you know, scientific revolution, industrial revolution ushered this uh, attitude and idea that the human reason is the ultimate criteria of everything. This absolute human reason, they follow that more than the Holy Spirit. And uh, they actually, this idea even goes farther. Can we show the picture? This is a famous Jeffersonian Bible in Smithsonian Museum. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our country, he believed in God in his own way. When we read the Bible, he said, Bible is a great book, but can, can be better. 
if we take it out all the supernatural account out. So typical man of enlightenment. He cut it out, literally scissors out all the stories that talks about the supernatural act of God. He just tossed it out and he said, this is a real Bible. This is a Jeffersonian Bible. And this is a liberal theology. And seriously, this is a real liberal theology, or I might say it's a heretical theology. There's no salvation. G.K. Chesterton, one of my heroes, he said in Everlasting Man, the book, he said, Christendom has died a series of revolutions, and each, of, each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a, for it had a God who knew way out of the grave. You know, throughout actually Christian history, gospel has been perverted a few times. During the medieval time, do you remember the Reformation story? The indulgences, you buy your salvation. Or you, you do all those, you know, ritual things to save yourself. And then during the, you know, once again, Enlightenment period, all these well-educated people, they say, ah, all, you know, let me teach you what real Bible talks about. And we just saw the, you know, glimpse of it. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Corinthians, when they received the good news of a risen Christ, they were revising the resurrection of Jesus Christ with their Greek thinking. And that's why Paul was so concerned about their understanding of gospel and salvation. And no wonder, once again, their church life is so chaotic. So today, second part of this resurrection chapter, we're going to add, we will learn why resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, the most indispensable explanation of a Christian faith. If you cannot, if, you, if somebody asks you, what is a Christianity? You have to bring the resurrection. Without resurrection, you cannot explain Christianity. Or whatever answer you give to Christianity, is just like a Corinthian. Very biased, very incomplete, very unsatisfying, and actually very untrue. So today we're going to ask the, we're going to see the why resurrection of Jesus Christ is the indispensable explanation of our faith in three ways. So in chapter 15, Paul brings out the three, uh, three reasons. One, let's assume Christ is a, has never risen. That Christ. If you really think Christ has not risen, there is a dead Christ, then he talks about pitiful consequences. Pitiful consequences of a dead Christ. If you don't believe in resurrection, then your faith is going to be like this. Second, well, on the other hand, if you really believe in risen Christ, there is a powerful consequences you will see. So second one is a more of uh, the opposite of the first one. And third and final one, Paul also talked about the practical consequence of a risen Christ. So what does it mean to us right now? If you really believe that Christ is risen and alive, then what does it mean to your life now? So let's look at the first part, uh, verse 12 to 19. And here Paul uses one of the most rhetorically powerful and detailed arguments of the letter. So let me just read the uh, 
chapter 12, uh, chapter 15, verse 12 to 19. But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have a hope in Christ, we are, the, we, are, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here Paul created a hypothetical situation with the word if, if, this conditional clause. Six times, I mean eight times Paul used if Christ is not raised, if there is no resurrection, if, if, if. And then he brings out the four pitiful consequences of a dead Christ. And this is a full implication for the uh, preacher, hearer, dead, and living. Okay? So first of all, Paul said about the verse 14, uh, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, so is your faith. The word useless, actually original Greek text is, uh, Our preaching is useless and the, your faith is useless. He used the word useless twice. And the Greek word for the useless is actually kenos, which means empty, hollow. If Christ is, is no resurrection of Christ, our preaching is empty, hollow. So is your faith. You know, I was so glad that Paul talked about the preacher first. Of course, that's what God called him to do. Because the preaching is what I do. Most of my weekly time is preparing the sermon. And then, you know, I average, I spend a good amount of uh, sermon preparation. How, how, how many hours kind of a ballpark figure for for sermon? Hmm? Yes, I, I do same. About 25 to 30. You know, my weekly day, if you ask me, how is how's your week? Many times it depends on how my sermon preparation goes. Some week, Right at the beginning, I kind of have a, you know, I understood clearly, and there's a special outline comes out. Sometimes it happens. Week is easy. But sometimes until Friday, even if nothing is a kind of a clear, man, you, my, you know, uh, people, uh, family, my family, they're all tiptoeing around me. You know? And, uh, and Paul is saying that if a crisis is not risen, that my weekly number one work is a nothing. <laughs> it's total waste. You know, one, one time, uh, years ago, uh, somebody in, uh, told me that uh, he he's a medical school student uh, at uh, Texas A&M, and then, you know, he said, Pastor Paul, every time I drive to a uh, college station, Texas A&M, I listen to your sermon, it helps me a lot. And when he said that, my reaction is that, really? Why do you do it? And then parenthesis, why do you do that? Why do you listen to my sermon? There's so many, you know, great sermons and the podcasts that you can hear. Why? But it, he was saying that uh, it helped me. 
So I had to, you know, kind of uh, keep my composure. I said, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end, I mean, you know why I say it? Because sometimes I prepare a sermon with uh, this uh, fear. I'm now going to hear my confession. That when I get to heaven, and God said, Paul, you've done okay. <laughs> but a few Sundays, man, you've tortured people. You know what he had done? Then I said, oh, Lord, I don't know what, you know. And he said, well, you know what? We'll give you time. We have eternity. Why don't you go with the Paul, and the Apostle Paul or Peter, whoever, and then review your sermon over. <laughs> and then the angels, you know, replay that the whole sermon. And I'm here and saying, you know, that is, those are ideas. So, because of that, I don't, many people, you know, some Sundays is okay, some Sundays is bad, but some those are some sort of a missed Sundays, man alive. The Sunday afternoon and Monday, that, 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 that regret, the, what is it called? Monday quarterback, quarterback king, whatever. Monday preaching. God is preaching my message back to me, and the, why did you say that? Why did you say this? What? All this? There is a torture beginning. So Paul is saying that if a resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a fact, his preaching is just a waste of time of everybody. And then he goes worse. He said what? We are false witnesses about God. That is a very, that is a shocking. He said, verse 15, we are then found to be more than that, more than, you know, my preaching is empty, false witnesses about God. For Jewish rabbi to say that I can be a false witness about God if a resurrection of Christ is not true and I, I talk about it, you know what he's saying? You guys should stone me to death. Because what is the penalty of a bearing false witness in the Old Testament? You're breaking not only Ten Commandments, but especially about God, you being a false prophet, false preacher, you have, it's a capital punishment. That's what Paul is saying. If a resurrection is not a historical fact, my life is not only meaningless, I'm a menace. I'm a threat to the truth, and you need to kill me. And then second thing about the implication for hearers, verse 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in sin. What do you mean you are in sin? Being in sin is the opposite of being in Christ. If you are not in Christ, who died for you and rose from the dead, you are still in sin. If a resurrection of Christ is not a historical fact, what Christ has done for you has no bail, has no efficacy. He's a dead guy. He's just one of the many dead guys in Jewish history. And earlier in chapter 15, Paul said, Jesus died for our sin according to Scripture. And he rose, on the third day, he rose for us according to the Scripture. So whole thing, if Christ has not risen, hearers is still in sin. And then he goes to the death, verse 18. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Those who gave their life for Christ, 
They just, you know, wasted their time if Christ has not been raised. You know, that means that uh, we should stop saying at the graveside of uh, our, our loved one's funeral, you know, in, usually in the burial worship, I say, now we commit the body of so-and-so to ground, ash to ashes, dust to dust, and then ensure and certain hope of resurrection to eternal life. Now we cannot say that anymore. We just, you know, say they are done. They are gone. They are gone forever. You will never meet them again. That's what is Paul saying. If there's no resurrection, all the loved ones who went ahead of us will never see them again. And then lastly, Paul said about the implication for the living if there's no resurrection. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. The word most pitied is miserable in, in other translations. And Paul here said, we are not just you know, miserable, but we are the most miserable people. Of all people, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection is not true, you are the most miserable of all people. Have you seen somebody, self-deluded people? People who are living in this imagination? Sort of a schizophrenic people? You know, I checked uh, Venezuelan's uh, situation very closely. And if you ever come, if you see, you know, I don't use a Facebook often because I, it takes time. And, you know, I just sign up to Facebook to spy on my kid. And then, you know, and then some of my friends will send that they're, they, you know, to receive some information. You know, I just, I don't have time for it. But last, you know, uh, a couple of weeks, I kind of uh, uh, accepted the many friends' requests from Venezuelan students that I taught because they don't, we don't have uh, much communication. So I look into that Venezuela story carefully and the YouTube. From time to time, I go to Venezuela update. People that really irks me these days are those of Venezuelans who said, oh, Maduro is a great. And the, all our suffering is caused by the American imperialists. It makes me so angry and frustrated. I don't know what to say. Or some communists in North Korea that, oh, we're living in the paradise. You know, Paul is saying that uh, if you believe in resurrection, he and all Christians are more miserable than any self-deluded people in this world. We are wor worse than schizophrenic. And actually, Paul comes back to this theme. If I just, you know, if there's no resurrection, and the, why in the world did I sacrifice this much? That's what Paul's argument here. Okay. Now let me go to the second point. And then Paul brings. The second reason why resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most indispensable explanation of a Christian faith, here he contrasts. Verse 12, uh, he, here he gives an overall biblical story, history, and it's a transformation by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This one, verse 20 to 28, let's read responsibly, okay? 
Our brothers will read first. Ready? One, two, three. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Then the end will come, and when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made a subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Here, Paul gives a overall biblical theology or biblical you know, history. Here, Paul used a typology. Typology is sort of an analogy, biblical analogy, okay? So verse 20, he said, but once again, in contrast, Christ is really risen. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Okay. So he brings out, first of all, this uh, typology of a uh, harvest. In the, in the Old Testament, in Jewish people, there are two kinds, there, there are two harvests, early harvest and the later harvest. Early harvest is usually wheat harvest. It happened in the spring. The bigger and general harvest happen later. And uh, the, uh, Paul was saying that the resurrection of Jesus is so, this is a sort of a, a telltale sign of what is coming. He's bringing Jewish, you know, uh, uh, Jewish eschatology or ap apocalyptic thought. Jewish people, this is what they believe what happened at the end of uh, history. At the end of a human history, God will bring all the dead people alive. There will be resurrection. And then there will God will judge. Judge what? God will declare who is his people. God will specially declare the Gentiles, the Jewish people are my people, and whoever follow their way is my people. This is what Jewish people believe, and still Orthodox Jews believe. And they still, some of them, counting the days, right? And then, disciples of Jesus Christ, what happened? They saw Christ die, and three days after, he, he literally, physically rose from the dead. And that's why, when you look at the Acts chapter 1, disciples of Jesus, when they get together with Jesus, their question was, Lord, is this time for you to restore Israel? You know that expression, restore Israel? It's just exactly the final resurrection and the God's final judgment. God will restore the glory and honor of Israel in front of everybody at the end of his story. Because they saw the resurrection of Christ. So they thought the end came. They have no doubt that resurrection, Jesus was dead and the reason, you know, now he beat the death and he's alive again. He is risen. So they thought, end is he here? And Jesus said, no. 
This is the beginning of the end. You go everywhere and preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will be with you and make everybody my disciple. Right? That's the Acts chapter 1. So Paul is saying here, Jesus is the first fruit of what is going to come. The fancy, you know, a theological term for that is a proleptic work of God. Proleptic is a something at the end revealed at the beginning. It's a, once again crude analogy. It's a, like we saw what is that? Uh, uh, what is uh, uh, the preview of the movie? Endgame. <laughs> I saw the preview of the the, the Avengers Endgame. Speaking of Endgame. That's not a real end game. You know, let me tell you, Avengers, Marvel Studios, they will not end with their story. They're going to make another one. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna crank it. They're going to milk your money, milk your pocket. This is, a, you know, more. And, but this is a, the end game. The real end game is here in the 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. In both cases, Paul used there are two men. Death, through, death, death came to us through one man. And then life and resurrection from another man, Jesus. He now brings a typology of Adam, the first Adam, and second Adam, or last Adam, Jesus Christ. Through one man's disobedience, that sin and death came to our world. Through another man's obedience to death, life and righteousness comes. Paul is bringing this biblical theology to all of us. And because of Christ, we are no longer in Adam anymore. We are no longer in sin anymore. We are in Christ. We are in incredible future is ahead of us. This future is much bigger and powerful and precious than anybody in this world can buy you and give you and empower you. Seriously, being a children of God is the best thing you can have. You know, imagine I'm a billionaire. You will look at my children differently. How blessed are you, Bethel? Your father is a billionaire. Man alive. He can send you anywhere. He can order. Thank God I'm not a billionaire. You know, so I can spoil her. I discipline her. Yeah, that's actually, she's so grateful for that. Point is, being a children of God, not just say, but through Christ we are adopted in God's family. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nagging you, but uh, every single day, when I kneel down before in my prayer chair and say, eh, Gracious Heavenly Father, you know, there is a chill on my back. You know why? When my children, you know, all of you call me, but when, my, when somebody calls me dad, there is my attention goes. I, I, I love all of you, but I love, I'm sorry, I love my children more than you. I'm sorry. I love my congregation, but I love my children. Okay? And whenever I call God as a father, it means I'm the most important person to him. And my prayer is not just a religious ritual. It is a personal. And when I call him gracious heavenly father, I know Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, the Lord of the Lord, He is hearing my prayer. He is really filling my heart. And He wants to help me out. And He's telling me, 
be patient. Dear brothers and sisters, in Christ, we came out of all the enemy curse in the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 to all the way. By the way, we're starting a cornerstone Bible study in June. Those of you kind of question about the garden of the, you know, Genesis tree of knowledge of good and evil and all that, there is a great, great uh, uh, wisdom and the blessing in that passage. So I hope you take a cornerstone Bible study. But Paul is saying here, is that in Christ, Christ as a second Adam, new representative of humanity, we have this new life. And this is very important. I want to bring out one important theological connection all of us understand. You know, creation and redemption, or creation and salvation go together. In the biblical New Testament understanding, the number one New Testament theology of salvation is not just a saving us for heaven. That is a very, very, very narrow understanding. The real biblical number one overarching image of salvation is recreation. Restoration of what God originally created with love and goodness. Genesis chapter 1, God said everything that he created, he saw it was good, right? This is a bodily, you know, uh, creation. This is a good creation. Because of sin, this is a good creation when wacky, wacko. But when we are saved, God saves not only our spirit, but our soul and our body. And eventually we'll get a new body. That is the next Sunday's so, you know, message, but point is, the real biblical salvation holds a creation and redemption together. And all, this is a, my critique of American evangelical you know, uh, understanding of salvation. Very, very shallow. Mr. Creation. You know, Han, I'm so glad that he talked about justification. And then he kind of, at the end of justification, he said more than forensic. He said, we're all looking for justification. We're all looking for ultimate approval. Yes. It is not only just a legal matter. There's a relational recognition. It's not about the getting a, you know, I mean, you know, uh, leaving a courthouse with the freedom. It's not releasing from the prison. You are not only released from the power of sin, but you are into the powerful love of a, you know, God Almighty. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5:17, if uh, anyone is in Christ, what happened? is a new creation. All that's gone, behold, everything become new. Christ become a new creator. You know, salvation, it does, it, it brings back the creation in the perfect harmony with God's love. The good creation that we lost through the Adam's sin and disobedience, through Christ, now, we not only know God's love, but everything God originally intended is start working and getting into the focus. Now, let me bring the last point today. Then Paul goes to practical, practical implication of a resurrection. Let's look at the verse 29 to 34. Let's read together one more time. 
This is a short pass, uh, com comparatively short. Let's read together, one, two, three. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do baptize for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are the people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I face death every day, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If there are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad companies are corrupt a good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. And stop sinning. There are some who are ignorant of God. I say to this to their shame. Here, Paul comes back once again, if there is no resurrection. And he expounds. He said, if there is no resurrection, all we do doesn't make sense. And especially three things he calls. Sacrament, such as a baptism. Suffering, which is daily go through. And then sanctification. Paul said, don't company with, don't share your company with the bad people or sinners. Now, about the sacrament, verse 29 is a kind of a puzzling passage here. If there's no resurrection, why will those do who are baptized for the dead? If that, that, that. So it seems like uh, some of the Corinthians, they were baptized for their loved ones who are dead. I wasted about, not wasted, I, I spent about half day on this interpretation. There are, according to my research, 36 different interpretations. And briefly, I'm going to go through each one of them. And I see a panic, so we'll skip. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by the way, you know, actually, some people still practice this. Do you know who practice a baptism for the dead? Anybody? Mormons. Moments, and they say, "Oh, we are biblical." <laughs> That's sorry, <laughs> they are misinformed. They are idiotic, <laughs> because nowhere in the early church there are record of people being baptized for the dead. So what Paul meant here, people kind of scratch. And what what is it? So what the the importance of this passage is this? It's not so much about we need to practice a baptism for the dead. Paul, some of the Corinthians apparently did for whatever reason. And Paul is simply saying, if there's no resurrection, why do you wait, you know, why do you waste yourself in the baptism for the dead? He's just bringing a point. Not so much of a, that's what we need to do. Are we clear? So we don't practice a baptism for the dead like a Mormon. Don't ask me to baptize you for your grandfather. I'm not going to, okay? And Paul is saying here is this, more often that I face death every day. And verse 32, he said, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. If I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? By the wild beasts, he means those opposing. This is a typical uh, early church Christian's expression about those who persecuted them. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, a uh, martyr in the first century. He said, I was on his way to Rome to be executed in his letter. He wrote the letter every city he passed by, and we have a compilation of their letter. And Ignatius said, one time he was tied with a 10 leopard, leopard. That means a 10 Roman soldiers. 
he was escorted by the ten Roman soldiers. And Paul is saying is this, if there is no resurrection, why in the world did I suffer this much? Do you think I'm a stupid? You know, I have a several PhD. Do you think, you know, with this kind of intelligence, do you think I do this kind of, I receive this suffering with a, no, nothing but a human hope? I do this because I have a supernatural, divine hope in resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we do here doesn't make sense. We are totally... I'm sorry, word stupid is not a good word to say. We are so totally, you know, we, 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 we are losers. You know, I've been, we've been praying for the... Uh, uh, last Sunday, did you know, we had, we had a record-breaking attendance for the first time. We had 114 people. And there are so many people with the J initial. Jessica James, whatever, you know, Justin. There's, there are like a six, six, seven new people with a J. And uh, I've been calling people all the, once again, different names. <laughs> and, uh, and so we've been praying for the uh, shepherds, new shepherds. And especially by grace of God, we have uh, many young people. Yay, praise the Lord. We, I love old people too, but uh, young people, Yes, because this is for their church. You know, they, I, well, everything I do, I, we, I mean, we do, is for the, 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 the next generation can take and build up higher, right? So, and then we've been praying for their shepherds because I know Tommy and Elisha's house church. I saw the email list, man alive, it's like 20 people. And then more new people are coming to the, in the age group. And by grace of God, last Sunday, I mean, you know, Songung and Hayoung. You know, Hayoung who pray, and they step up to be, a, you know, shepherds. And let's give them a Songung, would you say? It's okay, it's in, yeah. And the Hayoung is in the back. And uh, I want to say this. They just had a baby. And he, one of his prayer requests is that I mean, to you know, sleep well. <laughs> we all, you know, uh, empathize with that struggle, right? Sleep well, and they just, uh, you know, started a new, I mean, career. You know, beginning of the career is very important. They're not middle of the career. They're at the beginning of the career. They just bought a house. Everything is new. They have so many other commitments, and they live a little bit away from others. Out of all this, they add up. They want to be house church shepherds. If there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're wasting their energy and time in wrong things. Wrong things. How about us? We really encourage all the members to come to house church weekly. Why do we do that? If there's no resurrection, why do we do that? If a Jesus is not alive, and here's our prayer, and then according to his promise, that two or Two or three gathered together, he is there spiritually. And in his, you know, even though we don't see him, he's there. And in his invisible presence, we confess our struggles. We confess our sins to one another. And we pray for one another. And Bible says that's how he heals us. But if he's not alive, what we do in the house church is a total group hallucination and waste of time. Dear brothers and sisters, Without resurrection of Jesus Christ, our meeting today is meaningless. 
Why do we meet on Sunday? Because it's the day that Christ rose from the dead. My life cannot be explained other ways than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your life, I hope, also can be only explained by resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, that thing, a lot of Christians, they don't need a resurrection of Jesus Christ to explain their life. They already weigh, they already said in a certain way to you know, explain their life. The more we follow Christ, the clearer the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most indispensable way to explain your life and my life. Let me close the message today. I once again, I want to remind you when Paul preached the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was not a popular idea of a resurrection in, in Corinth or rest of the Greco-Roman world. Nobody, today we, we kind of value, yes, Christ is risen. Back then, it was not a popular idea, even, you know, a, a, a good idea. Many people say, why in the world you get the, this the troubled body again? Don't you want to be some kind of spiritual ecstatic state? This is a very unpopular idea, resurrection of a bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once again, this is why all those smart scholars, like the Syrian Jones, Marcus Polk, and the, all these people, they, they, they said, that's not what I really believe. That's not what really the Bible said. They all you know, edited in their mind. But Paul said, this is the truth, and this is the fact, and this is how we live accordingly. How in the world that uh, Paul and Christians, they preach the unpopular notion of a literal bodily resurrection through their life? Their life really explains the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that, their life is a total idiosyncratic, idiotic waste of time. It is my prayer, you and I, on this Easter, we realign our life priority according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything we do is not explained by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a sin. It is unfaithfulness. It is a being of Corinthians. It's a 